0: This is a Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. It's November 30th, 2022.
1: Ahead this hour, a new book chronicles how four women helped shape the modern-day intelligence gathering in the United States. Nathalia Holt's book, Wise Gals, the Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage, follows the women from the end of World War II into the Cold War and examines how they changed intelligence and the workplace. That conversation in today's second half hour.
0: Arkansas right to work law turned 78 years old on November 7th, and a little over a week after its anniversary, a Fayetteville Starbucks became the first store in the state to unionize. Ozarks at Largest Anna Pope reports.
2: But they did not earn us in the more a raise.
0: As Dylan Hartsfield clutches
3: a cup of coffee outside the Starbucks off West Weddington Drive and North Salem Road in Fayetteville, a worker wheels trash out of the store and another car pulls in the drive through lane. Inside, baristas brew espresso shots, steam milk, warm baked goods, fill seasonal coffee cups, rinse and repeat. The night before, employees voted to unionize and join Starbucks Workers United.
2: I think personally for me, it's all about each other. I think that the workers in this store, they really feel like family. We spend so much time together here and just making sure that we worked together on this to make sure that it's something that we all wanted um, was super important from the beginning.
3: Hartsfield has worked for Starbucks for two years, starting in Russellville, then moving around to Farmington, Fort Smith, and Fayetteville. In October, the store's workers became the first in the state to petition an election. Out of 20 participating employees, 11 voted to unionize.
2: We had 17 partners uh, at the store that signed union cards, and only 11 ended up actually voting yes in the actual election. Uh, I think that that has no... I think that the company had a big impact on that.
3: Hartsfield says the company hosted meetings with the regional director, district managers, and other store managers at the location before the election. For Hartsfield's scheduling stability, raises, protections for employees of color and LGBTQ workers, and benefits are some of the issues motivating him to join the union.
2: I love this job. I love this company and truly Starbucks Uh, resonates with me um, on on many levels and I think that this is just something that they aren't getting right just yet. I think that given um, time a lot of the questions will be answered and then the company will feel less afraid of what the union has to offer.
3: There are about 9,000 Starbucks locations in the U.S., and 260 of those stores are unionized, according to Starbucks Workers United. The Fayetteville location is the 261st coffee shop to unionize. Arkansas, and 27 other states have right-to-work laws. These prohibit a union and an employer from signing a contract requiring employees to join a union as a condition of employment. Also, it prevents private sector unions from collecting members' fees. The natural state was one of the first states to pass right-to-work laws in 1944. In the same year, the state legislature passed an amendment guaranteeing an employee's right to join a union. Michael Pierce, an associate professor of history at the University of Arkansas, says right-to-work passed in the state to maintain Jim Crow labor regulations.
4: And and so, you know, it it, it wasn't like right-to-work in and of itself prevented union activity because, you know, uh, uh, clearly unions grew strong and powerful even with right-to-work laws. But over time, the divisions that right to work sort of sowed among the workers, Uh, whether it was early on, it was to, to keep black and white workers apart.
3: Later on, Pierce says divisions began to widen between union workers and people who benefit from unions without paying dues. He says this prevented worker unity. Although right to work impacts how unions operate, Pierce says deindustrialization created large problems for the Arkansas labor movement.
4: And then uh, several things happened that have prevented unions from having much power. One is that the economy has changed. We live in a deindustrial society now. Yeah, there's industry, but industry doesn't play as important role in Arkansas's economy or the nation's economy as it did before the 1980s, the 1990s.
3: Almost 4% of Arkansas employees in 2021 were members of a union, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Jessica Akers, the president of the Arkansas AFL-CIO, works with employees ranging from Electricians to Workers United, the organization running the Starbucks United campaigns.
5: Well, I would say this, you know, clearly we have a low um, percentage of organized workers um, in the state. However, you know, people do unionize um, here in Arkansas, and there are organizing efforts um, you know, that are, are made and, and and done, you know, throughout the state.
3: Typically, Acres says unions in Arkansas are associated with the industrial industry, and unions as a whole across the nation are gaining in popularity.
5: The service end and the service sector in Arkansas, you know, I think are now seeing that it's something that, could happen. And, you know, it's your right as a worker to join together to organize for, you know, a contract. And I think that's, again, also being a right-to-work state and an at-will state. You know, a contract is uh, priceless.
3: For Ozarks at Large and the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio One at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope.
0: There is no shortage of discussion of democracy in Bentonville tonight. At Crystal Bridges, former Secretary of State and Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton will participate in a conversation with Angie Maxwell, the director of the Diane D. Blair Center for Southern Politics and Society at the University of Arkansas. That conversation is happening at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. The conversation is in conjunction with the current exhibit, We the People, The Radical Notion of Democracy. Tickets for the event are long gone, but Arkansas PBS is live streaming the conversation on their YouTube channel. Also this evening in Bentonville is a gathering of younger Arkansas legislators, the Arkansas Future Caucus.
1: The group has a bipartisan membership, and tonight at the momentary, again in Bentonville, the Arkansas Future Caucus will host a panel to discuss their work in the state legislature and exchange ideas. Yesterday, we reached State Representative Aaron Pilkington, a Republican representing Johnson and Pope Counties, and a co-chair of the caucus. He says there is a specific requirement to be included in the Arkansas Future Caucus.
6: Legislators who are 45 and younger, so part of the millennial um, millennial generation, and Gen Z, we, we include them as well.
1: What can legislators and lawmakers who are 45 or younger bring into a legislative body that might be different than their older counterparts?
6: Well, I think one of the big things is just a deeper understanding of, of new technologies um, and the changing... Um, changing demographics of both the workforce and and understanding work life balance there's a generational change in how we view the world and so one of those things is uh like work from home uh, a lot of the older generations have a hard time um uh, kind of Seeing that as a productive opportunity, but you know, as a young legislator, you know, you can go to that conversation and, and talk about how sometimes working from home is actually a far more effective and cost efficient way to, to do business. So there's just, um, fresh ideas is a good way to think about it. Um, you know, while we don't have the wisdom of our older colleagues. Um, I think we do bring a new perspective as a younger generation who has seen a lot of change and who continues to see change in our society and just being one of those voices uh, in the room. So,
1: When you mention that one example, just one example of working from home and, and a, perhaps a generational different uh, attitude or lens toward that, that can, I imagine, both be something in what you do as a legislator, but also can it manifest itself in how people view legislation differently?
6: Sure. Um, I think so. I I think typically we always think uh, of laws as being things that restrict us and what we do. You know, they're the rules of the land kind of deal, but uh, oftentimes it's sometimes it's breaking down barriers and creating new opportunities and, and uh, opening things up to allow for, for new innovation. So I think sometimes we can actually help bring a perspective of, of let's empower more people. Uh, And, and because so much more we can do ourselves thanks to technology and, and sometimes that's a good thing.
1: Do you think this is something that can also be a different perspective on I don't know, education or social services or government spending?
6: Uh yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree. I think there's um just a, a different different viewpoint. Uh you know, so much now we understand differently about uh poverty and and some of the issues that that affect um all sorts of different demographics, whether it be the elderly or the younger or the uneducated. Um, and so I think sometimes, you know, as, as new information arises and there's new ways of thinking about things, I think we could be a voice in the room uh, to say, you know, well, maybe these policies haven't worked the way we had hoped they had for the past 20 years, and maybe it's time to do something different. You know, now we see that a lot of times homelessness has more to do with mental health than it does with a desire not to work. And so, you know, the issue there might be what can we do to incentivize them uh to take care of their mental health because of their mental health taken care of, they're more likely to work and not be homeless as opposed to uh to some of the other other things that have been tried in the past.
1: You are co chair of the Arkansas Future Caucus along with Representative Jamie Scott, who is a Democrat, so age is bipartisan.
6: Yes. Um you know, a majority of the, uh, future caucus is Republican, just as a, you know, super majority of the legislature is, is Republican, but, uh, we, we are a bipartisan, uh, group. You know, we try to work across the aisle and, and find things that we can work on. So despite us having a super majority that's growing in this last election, um, you know, I, I think us and many of our colleagues believe that good ideas can come from anywhere, whether it be young or old, Democrat or Republican. You know, we should all be open to listening to to new ideas, new ways of thinking about things and, and making uh, decisions on how to, how to form legislation from that.
1: How many members are there, do you know, of the uh, Arkansas Future Caucus?
6: So anyone under the age of 45 is automatically a member. So there are currently 40 members of the legislature that uh, meet that qualification.
1: 40 is not a bad number out of the the total.
6: Not not bad at all when you count 135 totals. I think that comes out to around 29.8% of the members.
1: This panel that will happen at uh, the momentary, talking about best practices and exchanging ideas, any idea of some of the things that might get discussed at the momentary during the meeting of this future caucus? Um. You know,
6: I, I think some of it may be, you know, how do we encourage youth engagement in politics? How do we get involved with them in not only campaigns but in the policymaking part um, of politics? You know, I think we'll talk about, you know, how do we find uh, common ground or, or common solutions that we can work on from a generational perspective? Um, and so I think those are a few things that we'll try to, or hopefully we'll touch on uh, during our discussion.
1: And Representative Pilkington. I don't know if this is a fair question, but do you think that younger legislators are more or differently optimistic than perhaps their more experienced colleagues?
6: Uh no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. Okay. Um I I think most of us legislators are pretty optimistic about the future of Arkansas. Um I think sometimes maybe as younger ones are a little in a little more hurry <laughs> than other ones, but um you know, I, I I think we're all pretty optimistic about the future of Arkansas and and where we're headed. I I think um, there's a lot of good things to brag about Arkansas, and, and one of the things I'm I'm really appreciative about bringing down this national group to come into Arkansas is, in many ways, I want to show off what we've done. You know, for a small state, a rural state like Arkansas, we have this you know massive group of young legislators. We've got these growing areas in the state. We've got a lot going on, and you know sometimes. Uh, Uh, You know, we need to be more ambassadors uh, for Arkansas to the rest of the country. And I think this is a great uh, opportunity for us to to show these people what all all is going on in Arkansas. That's uh, they can they can really go back home and say, you know what, there's there's something in the water down there in that Arkansas River because they've got it going on.
1: (laughs) And that national group you mentioned is the Millennial Action Project. Yes sir. Finally, uh let's let's expand whether you're under or over 45, you as a as a member of the Arkansas legislature that'll be meeting in the next few weeks, do you personally have um some subjects or goals you'd like to see uh, you know obtained in the next uh few months in the in the state capitol? Sure,
6: sure. Yeah, I'd like to see uh, improvement in our women and infant health uh, uh across the board um you know, healthcare is uh, something that's very near and dear and close to my heart. And I think as we uh you know, as the state try to improve, that's an area that I think that we can really move the needle on pretty drastically is improving um, maternal and infant uh mortality rates. We're lowest in the nation. And uh and also just expanding access to care for, for new and expecting mothers. So I'm um, I'm really optimistic that we'll be able to to move the needle on in that area and and I think we've got a lot of really great uh, legislators, both sides, young and old, who uh, who want to see uh, us move that needle and, and improve. So I'm, I'm excited about working on that legislation in the next session.
1: Representative Aaron, Pil- Aaron Pilkington is co-chair of the Arkansas Future Caucus. He's a Republican representing Johnson and Polk counties. Representative Pilkington, thank you for your time.
6: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Still to come today, after more than 30 years, E-Town is coming to Arkansas.
7: One of our, our people on our staff here grew up in the Austin area, and he has some friends who have relocated from Austin to Bentonville. And that conversation started, you know, they started talking about how Bentonville is you know, really actively pursuing ways of bringing more art and culture into northwest Arkansas.
1: We'll talk with E-Town host Nick Forster about tomorrow night's taping with the Milk Carton Kids and Buffalo Nichols in Bentonville.
8: It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. This is your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Fossil Cove Brewing Company, Dixon Street Bookshop, and more. Winners announced Friday, December 9th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration at KUAF.com. The Little Craft Show is hosting their 2022 winter event, December 4th, at the Fayetteville Town Center from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. This year's Little Craft Show will feature more than 100 makers and artists, holiday drinks and treats, and hourly giveaways. More
0: information at thelittlecraftshow.com. Testimony resumed this morning in a federal trial challenging the constitutionality of an Arkansas law banning gender-affirming care for those under the age of 18. The lawsuit was brought by the ACLU on behalf of the families of four transgender young people. Yesterday, the state called Mark Regnerus, a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. He testified remotely about studies done by other academics who were concerned about the growing number of underage patients who identify as transgender. He said some researchers suffered professional backlash for their work. KUAR's Josie Lenora is covering the trial.
9: U.S. District Judge James Moody cut him off when he was testifying, pointing out that disagreements exist all the time in
8: science and that he wasn't sure why it was relevant. He said, and these are quotes, he can't testify if he thought the criticism was appropriate or not. Um, I think we should get something out of the time we've invested in this witness. What does this have to do with the decision
9: I have to make uh, here today? At one point, the judge said, I get it. I am trying to find out what am I supposed to take away from this witness? He said it twice.
1: On cross-examination, attorneys for the plaintiff said Regnerus had testified in past trials as an expert against same-sex marriage. He also acknowledged receiving funding from a think tank called the Witherspoon Institute.
9: Testimony in the trial expected to wrap up tomorrow. The giving tree is up. The KUAF and Friends holiday giveaway is live. And we've compiled our best live musical performances of the year into a KUAF live CD compilation. That can mean only one thing. It's the season of giving here at KUAF. Beginning Monday, December 5th, KUAF will kick off our season of giving fundraiser, looking to raise $50,000 to pay for programming like Ozarks at Large, Fresh Air, All Things Considered, and more that you've enjoyed all year long. Support everything you get from your public radio station by contributing during the season of giving fundraiser beginning Monday, December 5th at 6 a.m.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us this Wednesday. In the latest episode of Undisciplined, we hear from Dr. Calvin White Jr. Dr. White serves as the Associate Dean of the Fulbright College of Arts and Science and was born and raised in the Arkansas Delta. He grew up as a member of the Church of God in Christ, or Kojic Church, and his experience is the foundation for his 2012 book, The Rise to Respectability. It's a predominantly black Christian denomination with deep roots in Arkansas. We start the conversation clarifying how this denomination differs from other common Christian denominations, like Southern Baptist or Methodist.
10: In the African American tradition or the black, I say black tradition a lot, these, these are people who clung to these, what we would refer to as vestiges of the slave religion that many of these vestiges that survived the Middle Passage and took root in the, the West Indies and especially the Low Country and spread. And what they did is they, the overt emotionalism, the dancing, the shouting, and what is unique to the Kojic Church, they believe in something called glossinalia, which is not unique to that. You see other uh, white. Nominations as well, the ability to speak in tongues, and not only the ability to speak in tongues, but the ability to interpret tongues as well, and to be in the ability of what Dr. Banton and I would know from across the water, and, you know, and the, is, you know, spirit possession, they, the Holy Spirit coming in. Well, you got to think about this, Matthew, in a time when African Americans have been recently emancipated, and they're trying to show whites that they're just as capable of learning, they're just as capable of everything that they are. They're trying to live up to the standard of whiteness. And the one institution that blacks control, which is their church, that goes against everything that many of these black, what I call cosmopolitan sophisticates, are trying to prove to whites, meaning it, it flies directly in the face of that. So there was a movement to distance themselves from this overt charismatic ritual and liturgy to this quiet, inwardly study. You know, kind of like the Methodist tradition, of which I'm a part of today. Very fine. There's a method to why we do what we do. There's a liturgy here uh, to why we do what we do. And so that's, that's what the book stems from. And looking how our other Blacks reacted to this religious denomination that started right here in Arkansas in the South and grew to every state in the country, every state in the country and about 38 states around the world right now. And Dr. Benton was talking about the Great Migration earlier. There are people who take this church out of the South and plant it in these Northern industrial areas via great migration routes. So it's all connected.
9: So, you know, Dr. White, this is very interesting to me because for a short spell there, I was a part of the Pentecostal church. I think I've told the story before, Matthew, about um, growing up in Jamaica and my mother, like all the kids from church, they were going to go get baptized. And I never saw baptism before. And my mother said I could only go if I got baptized. So I went. (laughs) But, you know, I know that, you know, I know it very well. But I also, for a short spell, I went to an Anglican school and then I was, for a short spell, there also in Catholic church. And, you know, thinking about race and respectability and the piety and the liturgy and, you know, all the things that people uh, associate with white civility. You yeah.
0: Know? <laughs> yeah, I think for me, when I think of, you know, when I think of the comparison, I grew up in a Baptist church and in college and after college started going to a Methodist church, the The separation that we sometimes think about with church is is uh, low church and high church. And this yes. idea that yep. low church is kind of this charismatic, it's this more spontaneous. Exactly. Whereas high that's church- That's the
9: church I love.
0: Right. And high <laughs> church is more of this methodical, Go- mm-hmm. it's li- li- liturgical, it's this kind of like very structured kind of almost the same thing everywhere we kind of I used of idea. to hate
9: that structured church. I'm like I'm like when does Jesus enter? <laughs> you know I'm like I'm like they you're gonna have to tell Jesus to come now because you know like <laughs> in, going to Catholic church everything was so structured. Everything seemed to be like it was so the structured piety. Yeah. I couldn't understand this thing that we were calling the spirit, right. how it would move. In what way would it be able to move if everything was so structured?
0: Right. Well, the idea there, I think, and, and Calvin, you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is that in the planning, the, the leaders who are planning the service are being led by the Spirit in their planning of the liturgy, in the choosing of the Scripture, in the thoughtfulness of the prayers that they're planning. It's in that moment that the Spirit is working, so that when, when the service comes, the Spirit has led to that moment, right?
10: And absolutely, Matthew, and that goes, let me pivot right there and connect it, because it's a central theme that's unique what you just said, you're absolutely right about the African American context at the time when these churches are being planted in America and the social pressures and the racial pressures, you know, being exerted upon them. At that point, you, the Kojic church says you only need to be, the spirit needs to be able to call you. The spirit needs to be able to move in you to allow you to do everything that you just said there. Where with African American uh, middle class and that growing middle class and these sophisticates, they wanted a more orderly, ordained, Ah. educated laity. They wanted those people educated in a way. Ida B. Wells, one of my heroes, she said, uneducated African American preachers do more harm to the race than anybody
0: else because she's subscribing to those notions of respectability. respectability. And uh. kind of, absolutely. The respectability therein kind of lies with the white community, right?
7: It's
10: trying A- to absolutely. be white.
0: It's that, exactly, yeah. that
10: living up that standard bearer of this otherness that you're trying to achieve, that they really believe that will will indirectly gain them privileges, whether it's socially, economically, or politically. If I can show them in our, li- in our ways of life that we are refined, we are educated, we, we can, you know, that they can, the system will drop, uh, will loosen for them and they would receive certain privileges. Now we know that as we go later, it's not always the case. And it's what Dr. Banton talked about earlier. As we see this growing middle class and we see this growing refinement, we see this high church becoming the establishment or many in many areas in these black churches or the black Wall Street, black business owners, whites would react negative to that because now that was an indirect challenge to the social order. Competition. Absolutely. And so they responded very negative to that with violence. So this notion that the system would shake something loose and render them certain things never came about. It's understandable why they believed it. And they, and they really tried to you know, ascribe to it, subscribe to it, But then we know later as historians, what happened when they did, when, you know, when they did do that, interrupted in what Dr. Ben was talking about the violence of 1919 and that, and, and the racial and these racial uh, uh, conflicts that happen across the country. And especially, and I, I tell my students this all the time, you can exert a notion of equality without walking in a, without walking in a front door or sitting at a lunch counter. It's what Dr. Benton was talking about earlier. It's the notion of wearing the same uniform that a white person is wearing. It's a notion of being able to own your own business and compete with the white-owned businesses that, that robs them. So those are notions of exerting equality with, without the aspect of what most students arrive in our classrooms thinking today. So we, de- you know, we deconstruct that. And it's exactly what Dr. Benton was talking about earlier, how they come in with these greatest hits of what they think they know. And what we try to do in these classes is deconstruct all of that and get them thinking about these things in a very different way.
9: That's quite interesting. So you were saying that all these African retentions, right, whether it's, um, you know, you're catching the spirit or you're the hoodoo or the African-derived religion that invariably— would be kind of melded because I'm telling you, Doctor White, I went to church with my grandmother Pentecostal, and she would come back from church and sprinkle lime and salt around the house. Okay. Yes. yes.
6: <laughs>
9: you know, and so to be respectable, you have to get rid of the lime and salt. You have to get rid of the African <laughs> retention because that's not respectable. Yes. You can. You have to get into ritual like things. That's going to articulate or or show white people that. That black people are deserving of certain privileges and certain um, rights in the country, via the church.
10: And Dr. Van, let me pick up right there. And when you don't have the proper lens and the language to understand that, what you can do and you will do is start to grow and start to disdain certain elements of who you are uniquely, who you are, and what you are. Because what I learned is, why should African-Americans have to distance themselves what is uniquely who and what they are to be able to occupy a space in the public domain here. Meaning is exactly what you said. So you have to be careful with this whole notion of respectability because respectability in many essence, the ultimate achievement of it will leave an African-American lost without a culture and empty.
0: Dr. Calvin White Jr. is the Associate Dean of the Fulbright College at the University of Arkansas. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and is a co-production of KUAF Public Radio, the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas, and Ozarks at Large.
1: This is Ozarks at Large with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoyne News Studio, Timothy Dennis. Hey! Hello! How are you doing? Uh, fine. You've been work well, you've always been working, but <laughs> you've been working on a special project the past few days? Right, so past one of few my, weeks.
8: One of my favorite times of year we get to look back at a lot of the live music that's been performed in this building over the past 12 months. And in this case, it goes back a little bit further. Oh. Okay, so at the end of the year during our season of giving fundraiser over the past 4 years, this will be the 5th we have released a special compilation Mostly with live music performed in the building or for us in some capacity.
1: Right, last year obviously because of pandemic, right. we just kind of did past Christmas. Performances. Yeah, and the year
8: before that, we celebrated 30 years of Ozarks at Large well, that's right. with yeah. a special CD. But we are back to offering a CD full of live music performances this year, and because the last couple of years were a little bit strange. <laughs> Uh, We have included a few of those performances recorded in 2020 and 2021 as well. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that either because there's some good stuff on these CDs. Double CD, right? Double CD. The first CD features performances heard and recorded for Ozarks at Large. And this is performances from everyone, uh, including Austin Cash, who performed in my home studio earlier this year, actually. Uh, Chris Acker, guy from New Orleans, came into town, played a show. Foxpaw, local emo artist. Uh, Cody Nielsen of the band Mm Moonsong, performing a suite from his kind of doom metal album this year. And even big hitters like Good Looks from Austin and Parker Millsap from Nashville. That's just the first CD.
1: How many songs on that first CD? Uh,
8: The first CD has 14 different cuts, Uh, again, ranging from... Early 2020 to earlier this year. All right. Second CD features all of the performances that we've had so far during this year's lunch hour series of concerts at KUAF. All right. Up to and including the last performance, which occurred in November with Fayetteville's Zone Jackson Hoyt. But
1: obviously, we won't have the December performance. Correct, correct.
8: Uh, but I mean, the, the lunch hour CD, it features performances from Bang, Mia Geldum, Modeling, Old Man Saxon, Adam Fawcett, Honey Collective, Pura Coco, Avian Aaliyah, again, Jackson Hoyt, Eddie Canyon, and Amor the Artist.
1: So one CD, uh, performances just for Ozarks at Large or specifically for Ozarks at Large, the other CD are lunch hours. Yeah. All right. And this will be uh, offered only through the fundraiser.
8: Correct. Correct. It's a thank you gift for people giving a certain dollar amount to us. We still haven't nailed that down yet, but yeah.
1: Now – Lee Wood, our general manager, had said something to me in passing, and you may not know the answer to this, <laughs> but I'm going to put you on the spot. She had said something about there are still a few CDs left from the first four years, so there might be a package deal where you can get all five.
8: We're still working out okay. the logistics and kind of how that's going to work. But, yes, we are planning on offering certain package deals uh, to get rid of some of our stock of CDs. Everything must go. Come Everything
1: ahead. must go. Okay, we're about to go into a song that I'm going to ask you to select to take us out of this conversation. Which of the 25 songs on the Hmm. CD do you want to end with?
8: I would like to end with a track from the Ozarks at Large CD, Mm -hmm. and it's by Honey Collective. It's actually the oldest cut on this set because it was recorded, if I recall, in December 2019, Mm. aired in January 2020— And then, of course, a couple months after that, everything got crazy. And this was recorded in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. It was recorded in the Furman Garner Performance Studio. The track is called The Hornet.
2: At the start of every season, I'm strung out
1: This is Ozarks at Large. For more than 30 years, the public radio program E-Town has championed musicians and community. Most of the shows are recorded live in front of an audience in the show's hometown of Boulder, Colorado, but many programs are recorded on location around the country. But in the three decades, E-Town has never been to Arkansas. That changes tomorrow night with the taping at the Momentary in Bentonville. Guests, the Milk Carton Kids and Buffalo Nichols will be on stage at 7 tomorrow evening. Yesterday, I reached the show's creator and host, Nick Forster in Boulder, to ask him about the Thursday night show at the Momentary in particular and E-Town in general.
7: We were always inspired by the power of music to bring people together. And, you know, I spent many years as a touring musician playing with the band Hot Rise. And I was on on tour um, in Eastern Europe with Sam Bush in 1990 and was just reminded, because we were playing in these countries that had just, um, you know, the Iron Curtain had just collapsed. The wall came down in Berlin in December of 89. And so in the spring of 1990, we're playing in Bulgaria and Czechoslovakia and places like that. And I was just so inspired by the, the way music could bring these people together in in to come to our shows. And um, I also got to see the environmental degradation of Eastern Europe. You know, that was what happens when government and industry are exactly the same thing. And that combination struck a chord for me because um, I have three daughters and I was thinking, boy, this is, there must be a way that we can combine these two things, you know, the power of music to bring people together, and then some dialogue that will stimulate conversation around what we can do to take better care of each other and the planet.
1: Years later, E-Town exists, is going strong. Did you imagine it being a project that could be this vital for this amount of time?
7: You know, I never thought about a time horizon for it, but I did conceive of it as a, as a big national show that would be syndicated and widely listened to. Um, and I think that was part naivete more than hubris. It was just, I didn't know how to do it, but I was lucky that in hot rise, I'd, I'd played on the grand Ole Opry and I'd played on Austin city limits. And I played on program companion. I played on, you know, all these, the, the WWVA jamboree. And I loved the feeling of live radio in front of an audience.
1: And, and of course, you do shows around the country. You're going to be in Bentonville. How did this come about?
7: It's really interesting. You know, we've done shows in lots of other states. We've, we've never taped an E-Town show, recorded an E-Town show in Arkansas before. We um, One of our, our people on our staff here grew up in the Austin area, and he has some friends who have relocated from Austin to Bentonville. And that conversation started you know they started talking about how bentonville is you know really actively pursuing ways of bringing more art and culture into northwest arkansas and would it be possible to do an eton show in bentonville and so we just explored it for a while and we've been talking about it i guess for about nine months and now we're now we're coming to do it and we're actually going to just see what happens
1: talking with Nick Forrester of E-Town. They will be taping a show at the Momentary in Bentonville Thursday night. Your guest, it's a pretty good lineup, uh, Milk Carton Kids and Buffalo Nichols. Um, That will be a fun show.
7: It'll be a fun show. Everybody who knows Milk Carton Kids knows that not only are there poignant songs and beautiful harmony and beautiful guitar playing and and lovely interaction of those two voices, but they're just funny (laughs) and smart and irreverent, and, um, you know, it's, it's always entertaining with those guys. And Buffalo Nichols is a soulful musician and singer who's been on a really great journey of his own that's sort of led him through all kinds of different styles and flavors of music to arrive at the place where he is now. And um, I think the combination is going to be really interesting. You know, we always have a finale at the end of our show, and um, we'll see. We have no idea what it is that we're going to pull together, but we're going to play music together at the very end, and we're bringing our crew from Boulder down to Bentonville, and we're going to, we're going to do our best.
1: Of course, there are um, details about shows that people, if they're in Boulder, can catch at E-Town Hall. There's many archives at etown.org. What else should we know about the program uh, in general and, and Thursday night specifically?
7: Well, we are excited to come to, uh, as I mentioned, a new place. I think there's something, something um, exciting about exploring, particularly the momentary, because it's, uh, um, it's designed to be almost an experimental, um, you know, art center where there's all kinds of different mediums and, and disciplines that are, that are reflected in the programming. So we're happy to be a part of that. Obviously, my crew is excited about getting a chance to go see Crystal Bridges while they're in town, <laughs> the great art museum and you know the other the other pieces and parts are we always try to celebrate some good news some good stories good local stories when we come into a new community and this week is no exception we're going to be telling a story of one of your neighbors from fayetteville who's um, just doing good work and and um, helping those in need and that'll be part of our programming as well
1: Nick Forrester with E-Town, safe travels from Colorado to Arkansas, and thank you so much for your time.
7: Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for sharing all this information about E-Town. We look forward to seeing you.
0: Nick Forrester is the host of the long-running live music public radio program, E-Town, the show's first ever taping in Arkansas with the Milk Carton Kids and Buffalo Nichols, is tomorrow night at The Momentary in Bentonville. More about E-Town at etown.org, and more about tomorrow night's show in Bentonville at themomentary.org. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving
1: Northwest Arkansas for 50 years. With gear, clothing, and footwear for hiking, backpacking, travel, climbing, canoeing, and kayaking, Pack Rat is a resource for outfitting in Northwest Arkansas. Information about events, clinics, and sustainability practices at PackRatOC.com. This is Ozarks at Large. Nathalia Holt has written about women who have been pioneers in male-dominated industries and led those industries to change for the better. Her latest book, Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage, examines how four women emerged from World War II to help form what became the CIA. These women not only brought cutting-edge technique to intelligence, they helped create paths for equality in their workplaces. Nathalia Holt says writing Wise Gals was illuminating and challenging.
11: So this was such a difficulty with this book. As you can imagine, trying to get information from the CIA was not easy, and it took many, many years. So I filed Freedom of Information Acts in order to get documents declassified. And the CIA was actually wonderful about helping me with this, They also provided historians that helped me review material from the book. Um, And in addition to this, I also was able to get a hold of many CIA officers, both retired and current, who spoke with me on the condition of anonymity. And they were able to tell me their personal stories about what it was like to work with this group of women and parts of their operations, how they ran. And and just the personal bits as well, but what it was really like to be on the ground with these women during the Cold War. Um, I also visited a large number of archives in Europe and in the United States, where I was able to get thousands of documents, just showing all the different roles of these women and 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 some other more personal material. And then I tracked down the women's families as well, and for all of these families, actually, they had no idea who their relatives were until after their death. Um, So these are women who had to keep their identities secret. Their families did not know what they did. And yet, still, even even with this, I was able to get such a wealth of information about what their personal lives were like outside of the agency, their friends, their family, diaries, letters, and that really helped me get a real sense of who they were as people and not just CIA officers. Your One of your first
1: connections to the women who would make up Wise Gals was through a familial uh, connection, right?
11: It wasn't one of my family members, but it was a woman that I was interviewing, and this was in 2017. And it was on a completely unrelated subject, but she had this story to tell me that was so surprising. It was about a Nazi war criminal, and then this shadowy American woman whose name she did not know, who she was not related to— But who had this very crazy story. And it struck me because there have been so many books written about women in World War II, and even more about men who've worked in intelligence, but very little has been written about female intelligence officers, particularly during the Cold War period. And, you know, as I went through all of the CIA histories and biographies, I found that even the names of this group of women have just been omitted from history. So that made me even more eager to track down who they were and what their work was.
1: They had different sorts of roles within the CIA, didn't they?
11: They did. They were also different. So they were called the wise gals by their male colleagues because of their intelligence and their sharp, biting humor. They could be very sarcastic, Um, but they came from all over. So you have Elizabeth Sedmeyer, who was raised on a reservation in South Dakota, served in World War II, and then went to junior officer training before being sent to Syria and then Iraq. And you have Adelaide Hawkins, who's a single mom of three. She was raised in a small town in the South. She had a high school education. She knew that very little was expected of her. And yet she rose in the ranks. She went from being a secretary to becoming a very powerful woman in the CIA, a director of covert communications. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have Mary Hutchinson, who had a PhD in archaeology, who was fluent in four languages. She served in World War II, and then when she applied to be an officer in the CIA, was just offered a secretary position. She got very angry about this, and she said, "Quote that is a waste of my abilities." Um, she was the kind of woman who was always clear about standing up for what she was right for what was right, and she definitely went after operations that were difficult, um, that were not easy for men. Um, but that she believed were important. So I love that, although all of their backgrounds are so different, they were able to bring these parts of their personality to work for them in operations. And that's really what made them successful, is their differences. They were different than many of the male officers, but they made that work for them in operations that truly very few people have heard about.
1: They also were instrumental in creating uh, more opportunity for women in the decades that followed and they were they were quite aware of of what they could do i think it seems to me from within to bring more women into the agency
11: yes that's true these are women who knew that they were trailblazers and they were ready to fight for the next generation of women and what's interesting is that they did this in 1953 you know at a time when women really weren't making the kind of strides that we think of today in the modern workplace. And in fact, it was that year that Ellen Dulles was appointed as director of the CIA. And at his swearing in, he casually asked the crowd, "Do you have any questions?" And immediately the wise gals began peppering him. They asked, "Why are women hired at a lower grade than men? What are you going to do about professional discrimination against women?" And I would say that even for a modern workplace, this line of questioning for a brand new agency director on the day of his swearing-in would be bold. Uh, but in 1953, it was just unheard of. It, you know, Women did not do this. Um, but it was a launching point for them. After this, the woman formed what was mockingly called the Petticoat Panel. And this was a panel intent on getting equity for female officers at the agency, so they were able to prove that while women were doing the same work as men, they were not getting the same promotions and raises. And this is not surprising at all. This is the 1950s. It's, it's what we would expect. Um, but what is surprising is their work to change this. And it's because of their work at that time and then the really amazing careers they had. That we have what is at the CIA today, an agency that is half women and that has Avril Haines, the first female director of intelligence, at its helm.
1: We're talking about the book, The Spies Who Built Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage. How dangerous were their jobs?
11: They were incredibly dangerous. So Elizabeth Sedmeyer was stationed in Iraq. And in Iraq, she was able to form her own spy networks. And she did this in a way that her male colleagues could not because she recruited her agents from a hair salon and a tailor shop. So they were truly resources that were unique to her. But given these agents, she was able to gain technical manuals on a whole host of Soviet weaponry. Um, And this was critical in the 1950s when there was a lot of danger about war between the U.S. and the Soviets. So this information was very important in preventing war at the time. Now, in 1958, Iraq had a revolution. The royal family was killed and Americans were being targeted throughout the capital city. Every other CIA officer in Baghdad fled after the revolution, except for Liz, She decided to stay behind, and she did this because she wanted to protect her spy network, and she wanted to keep giving information to Washington. This was an important point because President Eisenhower was getting guidance from some of his military advisors to send troops to the Middle East. And in fact, they did send about 1,400 troops at first to Lebanon as part of Operation Bluebat. So Liz's intelligence was very key in keeping the U.S. out of Iraq at this time um, and really did prevent a larger war from being sparked, even though she took an incredible risk in staying behind in Iraq.
1: So we've we've discussed their influence on, on further integrating uh, the agency itself, but there was long-lasting legacy of their work and how it affected the rest of the world and and diplomacy?
11: That's absolutely true. These are women that worked in espionage. These were skills that they gained during World War II, and they really saw them as the cornerstone of national security. They were trying to use their spying, their intelligence collection, and their counterintelligence as a way to prevent war. And they did it in many small operations. Um, but at the same time that they're doing this, we see in the late 1950s and early 1960s that the CIA is pursuing many of the Cold War failures that we more commonly hear about today, such as overthrow of governments in Iran and Guatemala, as well as, of course, all the failed Cuban miss- missions. Um, So the women were really fighting against this. And a big reason that paramilitary operations came to a head during this time was because the director, Alan Dulles, believed that espionage was what he called, quote, a bag of pennies. It just didn't cost enough. He didn't feel like it would bring enough attention to the CIA. And so he was pursuing these bigger operations as a way to raise the profile and the budget of the CIA. And so the women at the same time that they're fighting for their equity in the agency are also fighting for the role of intelligence. And so what we see is that at the same time, these failed Cuban missions are ongoing. We have Eloise Page, who is kind of your your classic proper Southern lady. She wore white gloves and pearls um, and occasionally tucked a gun under her blouse. And she was running an operation called Lincoln where she was recruiting scientists in the United States and then sending them on vacation to the Soviet Union, but they were armed with details about their counterparts. So they were seeking out scientists most like them in the Soviet Union, making connections, and then bringing that intelligence back to Washington. And that would end up revealing a wealth of knowledge about Soviet weaponry, about biological weapons that the United States just didn't have before and, and was very critical during this Cold War period.
0: Nathalia Holt is the author of Wise Gals, The Spies Who Built the CIA and Changed the Future of Espionage. Available now. <sighs>
1: This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Carrollton. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas.
0: Contributors today included Anna Pope, Timothy Dennis, Karee Banton, and Josie Lenora from our partner at KUAR. Matthew produced today's show and the latest episode of Undisciplined in the Bruce and Ann
1: Applegate News Studio 2. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Let's end with music from the Milk Carton Kids, who will be part of the E-Town taping tomorrow in Bentonville. They've been guests on Ozarks at Large. It was a years back when they were here for the Fayetteville Roots Festival. This is Morning in America from our 2019 live broadcast at the Fayetteville Public Library.
0: Thanks for being with us.
11: (laughs)
4: Fell asleep with the TV on, finally feeling like I belong. Woke up to a funeral song,
11: called you up to say hello, left a message for you at home, packed my dishes in styrofoam.
4: for